Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk to serve decision makers working in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance, and beyond. I'm your host, David Bennion. Well, the day this podcast goes out, Thursday the 28th of September, is World Maritime Day. So what better way to mark the day than for a marine war-focused special episode? I'm recently returned from the IUMI 2023 conference held in Edinburgh just a week ago. IUMI stands for the International Union of Marine Insurance. This is the global event for the marine insurance sector, with hundreds of marine and cargo brokers and underwriters in attendance. I'm pleased to say that I recorded two key interviews for the podcast while I was there, and I'm happy to share those with you today. You're going to hear from IUMI's president, Frederic Deneffel. Frederic is also managing director of the French marine war risk specialist insurer Garex. You'll also hear from Neil Roberts, head of marine and aviation for the Lloyds Market Association. Neil is also secretary of the Joint War Committee, representing the interests of marine war underwriting in the London market. I asked Neil how the marine war market responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The market is there to support the clients and it was able to do that very effectively. We were well advised by our Joint War Committee advisors, Herminius, and gave notice in good time before the conflict started. So underwriters were well positioned when hostilities began. Later on, certain reinsurance carriers took self-sanctioning measures and effectively withdrew from giving coverage. And that was manifested later on at the renewal 1-1 and there is basically no reinsurance for the area. So that leaves the direct market to write net lines, which it's very happy to do in the cases where people wish to give that cover. Since the collapse of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, are London market insurers still able to provide marine war coverage for ships transiting to the Black Sea? Certainly there is appetite to support clients, but at the moment there's a pause while the charters decide what to do. So those underwriters still in the market and willing to write risks are still there, but they're not seeing anything to quote on really. Recent Russian attacks have targeted grain infrastructure onshore hitting ports in the Black Sea coast, as well as riverine ports next to Romania on the Danube. Frederick explained the situation. I think that on the Black Sea, what we all together should really consider is how the Russian has focused on Ukraine in order to stop them to export their grain product, their agricultural product. Since July 2023, we have seen a new situation starting after the end of the initial grain corridor initiative, we have seen that the Russians have focused on harbors facilities in Rina and Ismail to destroy the uh, equipment which are necessary to load the vessels. We, we understand and we know and everybody knows that you need specific onshore equipment to load a vessel with grain. Russia knows that, they they know perfectly how it works, and they have focused on destroying those harbor facilities. Meaning that what is interesting for them is to disrupt and deeply the uh, ability of Ukraine to load and to organize and to streamline the uh, export of their agricultural product. If you destroy the harbor facilities, you create a real problem. You don't have to destroy vessel. 
you don't have to put yourself in danger in, in terms of diplomatic relationship. You just have to make sure that Ukraine cannot load anymore their cargo. And this is what they have been trying to do. They have started in Ismail. They have started in Cape Town in Reni. They have kept on also in Odessa, in the area of Odessa. They are constantly destroying the harbor facilities, which means that they are trying to uh, stop the uh, logistical, I would say, means and structures in Ukraine uh, for them to uh, be weaker in terms of uh, shipping out their internal agricultural production. This is a fact. I mean, you can see it. You can observe it from the beginning of the latest phase since uh, July. And I think that this will keep on. I mean, it, it's not too difficult for Russia to keep on destroying those infrastructures in, in two harbors. And for sure, it's certainly um, putting any kind of ship owner under a question mark. As a ship owner, when you send your vessel into some areas, you want to make sure that the vessel will be involved in limited time for this shipment, for this voyage. When you know that the infrastructures in those harbors are not available anymore or may not be available anymore between the moment you start the voyage and the moment where the vessel will be able to load, then you realize that your trip can last much longer than originally expected. And therefore, you might hesitate to send your vessel into such area. You don't want her to be stuck there for ages waiting for the cargo to be loaded. It's worth noting that it makes sense for the Russians to hit this kind of infrastructure with their missiles, given the limitations of their weapons and the intelligence they have. Russian missiles aren't as precise as Western smart weapons. Russia also lacks the kind of dynamic, real-time, often satellite or electronic warfare-fed intelligence to hit targets that can move quickly. Witness their failure, for example, to knock out Ukraine's air force, which dispersed and moved around quickly to different bases in order to evade Russian missile attack. They simply haven't managed to take them down in more than a year of fighting, despite being tipped to do so on day one. Unfortunately, all of this means that large static grain infrastructure will continue to be an attractive target for Russian missiles. Despite the risks for shipping in the Black Sea, on September the 22nd, the Arayat, a bulk carrier, left the Ukrainian Black Sea port of Chernomorsk after loading 17,600 metric tonnes of Ukrainian wheat bound for Egypt. A few days earlier, a much smaller vessel, the Resilient Africa, left, testing the route with a cargo of just 3,000 tonnes. I quiz Neil about whether these vessels represent an anomaly, or could they be the first of many transits to come? It's an anomaly in that there's nothing been going for a while, but strategically you would think it makes sense to do what might be described as a test voyage in, with relatively small tonnage. What was slightly surprising is that it wasn't publicised because everyone is watching and therefore basically it's quite difficult to sneak in. So perhaps it would have been strategically better to have publicised it and then any response would have been even more public, if you like, and attracted negative publicity, which is not desired by the Russians. In terms of what happens next, that, that's the thing everyone doesn't know the answer to, so it would make sense that if they were to come out unmolested, then a couple of bigger ships should follow in to see then what is the Russian reaction. And of course, until that's clear, there will be a perceived enhanced risk of quite some size, 
and we can hope for the best. There's going to come a point where the Russians have to enforce their embargo. It hasn't been declared, but it would be effectively enforcing an embargo or to make a virtue of not doing so. I also asked Frederick about the many risks the ships face when making such a potentially perilous voyage to and from the Ukrainian ports. First of all, whenever a vessel is sailing around this area close to Ukraine, whether it goes to Ukraine harbors or whether she has left uh, Ukraine harbors heading to Bosphorus, for example, one has to think about floating mines. And this is uh, something which can be a real concern. Obviously, Ukraine government and Ukraine authorities have done a lot to uh, control and make sure they could identify all those floating mines, but you cannot 100% be sure that such control will be accurate. So that's certainly the first problem. The second problem is about any kind of threat coming from the Russian Navy, considering um, any kind of, uh, I would say, uh, thing that you can consider like missile, like being arrested by some Russian vessels at some stage, like it has happened in uh, August, where uh, one Turkish vessel has been stopped by Russian Navy, visited, and then left uh, to keep on sailing. So there are several problems which can be linked to that. The arrest of a vessel by the uh, Russian Navy is not to be considered as a remote risk. One could decide uh, on the Russian side that they will control some of those vessels and maybe arrest them at some stage under conditions which are not under control, really. So there are several threats, and those are still there, even if you also can consider that Russian might not be so decided to attack and destroy merchant vessel as long as this could create some diplomatic issues with the countries behind any vessel which could have been attacked, like the flag states or like the owner states or like the registered states where the vessel was registered. So even if one can feel that this is not something the Russian would do on a kind of systematic basis, all of those types of situation can happen. And this is why it gets so difficult to ensure those vessels going in that area uh, with so much uncertainty. This is, I think, what the risks are concerning the vessel. And do not forget, please, that we're not only talking about the vessel, we're talking about the crew on board, and we're talking about the cargo on board as well. There are basically, uh, I would say, three main, let's say, interests which are involved into those voyages. And, And the most important of them is certainly the crew. If ever there is any problem with the vessel, the crew will be the first to suffer at such situation. And I imagine that as an owner, you have to think twice before sending your crew plus the vessel in such area. Frederick also spoke to me about the difficulties that any salvage company might face. That's certainly another issue which comes on top of it. Any kind of damage that a vessel could suffer, even if you're talking about a pure and simple internal problem like a machinery damage, or a rudder damage, the vessel becoming, I would say, unseaworthy. She would need the support of a salvor or a tug. And in such circumstance, you will have some problems to find any tug owner prepared to send his ship or his tug plus his crew on board in such a situation, just because of the military threats. That's for sure as well one of the problems you can have. 
And if you keep on measuring the uh, specific situation that anyone can met trying to sort out a vessel which is in distress, you also have to think about where to repair the vessel. With the war risk reinsurance exclusion in place, I asked Neil where the insurance market expects the Ukrainian government to come up with guarantees that effectively play the role of reinsurer. Definitely not. The market is there, it's ready to write. There are schemes, of course, behind the scenes, but we haven't seen them taken up, certainly not activated. We are aware of approaches to certain parties, but at the moment, the market simply is on its own and relatively happy to be on its own. We've been working without reinsurance for a while, so there's no great need to have it. I mean, obviously, everyone would prefer to have a, a backstop of some kind, but it's got to be practical. It's got to be linked in and it's got to be there for the duration. The Dark Fleet was the focus of one of the most engaging and controversial presentations at the Ayumi conference. The sanctions in place against Russia have driven away insurers from covering these ships. There's little to nothing in terms of oversight for the ships, their cargoes or the entities involved with them. Not only are these ships in the Dark Fleet keen to hide their activities, such as by turning off their AIS transponders, but the ships themselves tend to be older and less well-maintained. Research by Lloyd's List intelligence analyst Michelle Visa Bockman indicated that 535 tankers make up this vast, shadowy fleet, representing 12% of the international trading fleet. Two in every three tankers that shipped oil from Russia in August were not compliant with G7 sanctions, she noted. Bockman's presentation warned about ship-to-ship transfer hotspots, where dark fleet tankers congregate to transfer oil without being observed. Usually international waters, such as the Mid-Atlantic, the list of hotspots also includes Southeast Malaysia, West Africa, Ceuta near Gibraltar, Kalamata in Greece, Kavkaz in Russia, and Iosu in South Korea. There were eight incidents involving sanctioned oil tankers reported in 2022 including the destructive explosion of the Aframax tanker Pablo, which caught fire in Malaysian waters in May and left several members of the crew missing. Because this ship was part of the Dark Fleet, salvers were unable to board. Fortunately, there was no other vessel involved. But had this been a collision or a ship-to-ship transfer, it would have been a completely different story. The burnt-out wreck of the Pablo remains at anchor and the owners are impossible to contact, leaving the authorities with a significant headache. One speaker at the event likened the risk for these ships of the Dark Fleet, in the event of a collision for instance, to being hit by an uninsured driver. I asked Frederick where this was an apt comparison to draw. The difference between being hit by an uninsured driver and by uninsured ships is that in some countries, and maybe it is the case in UK, the fact that you're hit by an uninsured driver opens up a possibility to have the support of the local state, which will come and pick up any bill that cannot be uh, paid by uh, the uh, uninsured car driver. Where in our case, when there is no insurance behind a vessel after a collision, there is no one to pick up the bill. There is no one who will be able to uh, support the victim, so to say. And therefore, it's a matter of insurance. I mean, if you have a vessel fully and regularly insured, which is hit by another vessel which is not insured, the damage suffered by the one who is fully insured will be paid 100%. 
by his Holland machinery insurers, okay? Therefore, there is nothing that can be prejudiced for the original regularly insured, should I say. When it comes to the liability of our insured, we will have to wait and see what is claimed by the dark fleet, so to say, owners' vessels. If they want to claim something, they will have to be able, on their side, to uh, build up some kind of scenario to demonstrate that they will be able to pay some of our losses. Into a collision, there is no case where somebody is liable 100% and the other one is innocent 0%. It's always an apportionment of liability. So therefore, anything which can be considered here is that anyone coming from this world, or gray fleet world, without any insurance, claiming against a vessel which is so to say, regularly insured, might also be in, in, in a very difficult situation to obtain anything from us, as long as he's not able to put up anything on his side. In terms of collision, once more, it's a division of risk, it's a division of liability, and each of the vessel pick up one part of the bill. But ultimately, you have to bear in mind that the uh, insured, which is regularly insured, will have the full support of his insurers and P&Is without any limitation or the ones who are provided by the contract which are in place. And his ship owner will be fully indemnified by his hardened machinery insurers or his P&I. So he will not suffer from such a situation. The case is different when it comes to a pollution, for example. If you have the Pablo, which goes through a major explosion and which spills, let's say, 5,000 tons of oil on whatever beach you can think of in Malaysia, Malaysia will not have anyone to pick up the costs of cleaning the beaches. Therefore, the Malaysian government will have to pick up those bills and pay for it, meaning that people who live in Malaysia and pay taxes will be the one ultimately bearing that kind of expenses. For all those coastal states allowing those vessels to do what they are doing, to have in mind that the kind of risk they are taking. If they allow such a vessel to move into their tidal waters, knowing that it's certainly a tanker or a vessel being part of the dark fleet, meaning that he will certainly have some problems to put up any PNI or to put up any Holland machinery insurance, they have to consider the consequences of such a decision. I mean, any tanker, any vessel moving into territorial waters has to declare itself to the local authorities, has to appoint an agent, and has to provide some kind of information about his insurance status, notably when it comes to PNI, notably when it's a tanker. Therefore, if those vessels are able to go in some areas more without having those previous control from the local states or coastal states, if any problem occurs, I mean, the coastal states, which will not have properly done his homework, should I say, might have to face all the consequences of having such a poor insured vessel into his area, causing some prejudice, meaning that he will not have anyone to pick up the various expenses. Russia-Ukraine, of course, is not the only geopolitical hotspot. Mines are also turning to what could be a far greater threat to maritime trade and the global economy, simmering tensions between China and Taiwan. Any potential problem between Taiwan and China will have a very strong effect on shipping. Very strong. There's a lot of speculation around future scenarios and, and Taiwan has come up, of course. 
Lloyds has been very prescient and run an RDS for Taiwan, although we haven't seen the outcome. Um, we are aware that there was a, a report to our Foreign Affairs Select Committee that was cautious on the prospects and essentially argued that it's not in China's interest to act precipitately, either in, in a military sense or in economic terms. And because the Chinese position is dependent on economic stability, and they have a long-term political aim, which in their thinking they are on track for, there's no real reason why they would change that. So although obviously people need to be prepared, it's more a case of caution rather than crisis. The event theme at Ayumi was strength and stability in turbulent seas. Of course, most of that turbulence, the white caps in that seascape, been caused by geopolitical threats. To close, I asked Frederick whether he thought all this focus on geopolitics is particularly remarkable for marine insurers and the sector they underwrite, which is so vital to the global economy. Absolutely. One has to remember that we did not experience such a situation for a long period. I mean, we, we didn't suffer any major conflict in Europe having such an impact on international maritime trade for more than 50 years, really. You have to go back to uh, some specific wars in not so close to Europe, for example, in Canal de Suez, Suez Canal, or in uh, Chat el Arab uh, in 1982, uh, Chat el Arab, the war between Iran and Iraq, where for, I would say, a period of time, 75 vessels were stuck in Chat el Arab following the orders pronounced by the Iraqi authorities against any vessel being there. You had tankers there uh, being involved into uh, loading operations, which have been stopped by the Iraq government, and they never went away. They were lost after X months of being stuck there. And then you had the tanker war starting just after that, and which lasted for about four to five years. But altogether, a lot of tankers were hit during that time and damaged some up to uh, being total losses. And this has caused billions of US of dollars of losses altogether. So therefore, it's not like it did not happen. It's something which did happen, but as you can see, long time ago. So we have totally lost the track with such events. And whenever I explain the situation of war risk, and whenever I go back to uh, Suez Canal crisis, six days war between Israel and Egypt, when I go back to the Chat el Arab uh, blockade, I mean, there is not much that I can see into the eyes of the people listening to me. <laughs> I really have to go back to the history and try to, to give some details. But since then, nothing had happened. This is why we had forgotten that on the marine insurance side, we are also exposed to war and war risk-related perils, which is something that, that was not felt as being so important for marine insurance. We felt that globalization meant peace. And uh, as long as peace is there, or theoretical peace, at least, which means that as long as you're talking about cyber threats or cyber risk, you're not really talking about damages to ship, damages to cargo, therefore, nothing really to consider. But when it comes to shipping, I mean, we as an industry or as a group of professionals can now understand that shipping is very much under the threat of 
political disturbance in case something goes wrong between two states, it can be very quickly that the shipping activity will be hurt by that. Thanks for listening and see you next time, which will be discuss either Latin American political violence or African food security, whichever episode comes out first. You've been listening to the Political Risk Podcast, hosted by me, David Benyon. My guests were Ayumi's Frederick Deneffel and Neil Roberts of the Lloyds Market Association. Production is by Peter McGill and Lawrence Durkin provided the music. <laughs>